right, I'm going to speed read to catch us back up here. <laughs> Today's reading is from John 10, verses 7 through 18. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out. It will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, thanks, Brian. Kind of just want to bring Eric back up. Um, I was kind of upset that he didn't bring samples, though. Because it's, you know, it's the 5 p.m. service somewhere, right? Um, <laughs> um, and also, I, I love the succulents. I feel like Arizona, like succulents are Arizona's version of put a bird on it. You want something to look cool, you just put a succulent on it. Um, well, I'm Cody. <laughs> I'll be doing stand-up all day. <laughs> and um, uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Today is actually, so we're actually finishing up the Love Walked Among Us series today. If, if this is your first time, then I would actually highly encourage you to go back and listen to some of the podcasts. We've been walking through... Uh, a series called Love, to Walk Among, Love Walked Among Us. Um, it's, it's basically a, a look at kind of slow motion Jesus, getting to know what Jesus looks like as a person in real time, in real events, not just understanding the theology of Christ, not just understanding um, the implications of Christ, but actually who Jesus was as a person. What would he have been like to be around? Um, and we, we've been walking through that uh, and many of us have been reading Paul Miller's book of the same title, Love Walked Among Us, which we're loosely connecting what we're doing with that. Um, and I don't know about you, but for me, this has been an incredible series to be able to be a part of, to be able to teach, to be able to learn from, uh, to be able to interact with uh, both conversations that I've had with you guys, conversations I've been able to have with other staff and other pastors at other redemption churches. Uh, it, it just showed, I think, the Spirit working in a way to show us this is something we need to pay attention to. That there was something missing in how we were approaching Jesus. And to recap what, what we've been looking at and the reason why it matters uh, is, is really two things. The first is that God is like Jesus, so if we want to know what God is like, then we need to look at what Jesus is like. We need to actually understand how Jesus interacted with people. Who did he care about? Who did he spend time with? What made him happy? What made him sad? What made him angry? How did he respond to certain situations, to certain people? Because as we know that about Jesus, we understand that about God. The other is because we are supposed to be like Jesus. Not just that we are supposed to believe in Jesus, 
not just that we're supposed to honor and respect Jesus, but we're actually supposed to live and act like Jesus. Following him, being his disciple, means actually acting like him. And what we've been ultimately tying it into is that the underlying reality of who Jesus was, the overwhelming characteristic amongst many characteristics of Jesus, is that Jesus was love. That if we want to know what love looks like, if we want to truly understand the nature of love, then we have to see, know, and understand Jesus. So today we are, we are looking at the culmination of that love. What is it about Jesus that ultimately pushes him into this realm where we can say that is pure, true love? This is what love looks like in its most um, perfect form. Uh, and so ultimately we are going to be looking at the reality of Jesus' death, because Jesus' death is what ultimately proves his love. But before we do that, I think it's actually important that we understand a little bit of the, the idea of love in the first place. Um, and that brings me to the, the first point that I want to look at. And you've heard us say this a few times before. Um, you've heard us talk about it, but I really actually want to take some time to explain what I mean, because I, I, I think even I didn't understand it the first time I heard it, and that is that death is at the center of love. Death is at the center of love. There it is, yep. Sorry, I kept on waiting for it. Um, death is at the center of love. This seems like a, a weird notion, right? Now, on the one hand, I think that we understand that like, the ultimate sacrifice, when somebody pays the ultimate sacrifice, that that is clearly a loving thing, right? This is something that even whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, inside the church, outside, it doesn't matter. I think we recognize that when somebody sacrifices themselves for somebody else, that that is a loving thing, that that is a beautiful thing. We see this um, in fiction, we see this in movies, you know, we see um, Bruce Willis in Armageddon, uh, you know, we all teared up at that moment. Dennis Quaid in Independence Day. Um, and I'm sure it happens in Marvel movies. I haven't watched the Marvel movies. I don't care about the Marvel movies. And I really don't want to talk about that um, with anybody afterwards. Um, but we see this all the time. We see the ultimate sacrifice. What I don't think we see is that that's not just a form of love. And it's not just the ultimate sacrifice that proves love, but that death is at the center of all love. That to love somebody means that you die a little bit to yourself. That in order to love anything, anybody, there is a death involved. You know, I, for me, I don't think I really began to learn this until I got married. And you realize I can't just do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it because that's not really all that loving. And then you realize that all the things that I wanted to do with my time were kind of stupid anyways. <laughs> but you realize that. You, you enter into this relationship and you realize, for me to love this other person, there is something in me that has to die. And if I didn't get it then when I started having kids, I really got it. Because to love them... These little cute little monsters that take up your sleep and your energy and your health and your money and your time. These are these roommates that just move in and they wander around and they throw up on you 
and they whine at you and yell at you and, and things like that, these little bundles of joy that we all love so much, you realize that to love them, there's something about me that has to die, right? I mean, and it's, it's not even just like a spiritual or emotional death. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm dying quicker because of my kids. <laughs> like, there are parts of my body that I didn't think I had that hurt now. Like, there, there are, there's just, it's just crazy what happens. But this is, you don't just have to enter into that. This is any relationship. We have to see this. Like, for, if you live with roommates, like, for you to love them well, a part of you has to die. I remember in college, and it's shocking when I say this, that I eventually ever got married in the first place, when you realize how I lived in college. Like, me and my college roommates, we didn't want to die to ourselves so much that we would rather literally stack dirty dishes for weeks on the counter. Like, it was like playing, like, Jenga or Tetris or something like that. And then we had, we didn't have a trash can. We had what we called a trash quadrant um, because we didn't want to take it out. So we, like, sectioned our kitchen off into a quadrant, and one quadrant was the trash area that we would stack up. And eventually some, one of us would break and we'd all laugh at them and then they'd go out. And we realized, it took us like a year and a half to realize this, if we actually loved each other a little bit by like dying to ourselves, we would all live happier. It was weird. But this happens there. It happens with our neighbors. It happens with anybody we're called to love. For us to love anybody or anything, it is the choice to enter into death. And I think that that is the thing that we struggle to understand. We don't struggle to understand the idea of ultimate death being a sign of love. I think we struggle to see that the little deaths are just as important to love as the ultimate ones. Paul Miller, uh, in both his book, Love Walked Among Us, and a number of other things, and some of the things that he's uh, taught us in... um, just some of the uh, training sessions he's done. He talks about this thing called the J-curve. And uh, Frank talked about this a few weeks ago, and I want to put up a, a slide that looks at it because he uses this idea to show what it looks like to love. That for us to love, we actually must first descend into death before we can enter into resurrection. Before any of the benefits of love can take place, we must first enter into death. And he says that the problem that we oftentimes have is we want to be on this side without doing this. And we see this all the time. We want to love somebody, but we don't want to change anything about ourselves. We don't want to change any of our lifestyle. We don't want to change any of our habits, any of our ideas, any of our concepts. We just want this part. We want the feelings. We want the the excitement of love. We want the restoration and healing that love can bring, but we don't want the death. What he says, and what we've looked at, and what Jesus exemplifies in his life, is that there is no resurrection without death. There is no love without death. There is no life, ultimately, that love brings without death. And so for us, and the reason why I wanted to take some time to look at this is because I think for us to understand the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus makes, which is what we're going to look at today, we have to see it as one of many sacrifices that he made. Jesus didn't just die once for our sins. He lived a lifestyle of daily deaths. He lived a lifestyle of daily deaths. You look at, I mean, even at the beginning of his ministry, he's going to a wedding. He just wants to go to a wedding. 
And his mom outs him, basically, and says, no, you can turn this water into wine, and he has to do that. He's walking down the road, and he can't walk anywhere without somebody stopping him to heal them, to teach them. He's on a boat, just trying to get from one side of the thing to the other, and the storm actually interrupts him. And then his disciples pester him. Like, he is living a life where he is constantly interrupted, constantly distracted, constantly being beat down by everything. He gave up his status. He gave up all the powers that he possibly could have had as God for the sake of doing what he did. He lived a life of daily death. So by the time he got to the ultimate sacrifice, this was basically just the way he lived his life. He lived a life of daily deaths. And I think just as a side note, that's important for us to know as we look at this and say, well, what does it look like to love like Jesus? As I know so many of us would say, well, if the time came and I had to give my life for somebody I love, I would do it. And I would say, if you're not willing to get up off the couch to help your friend or your spouse or your kid, then there's a likelihood you're not going to stand in the way when it comes to the ultimate time. If we're not willing to do the daily deaths, we're not ultimately going to pay the ultimate deaths. That love is a muscle, it's a practice, it's a discipline, and Jesus exemplifies it better than anybody else. And we see that as we get to the cross. So the second thing I want us to see before we really dive into what he's ultimately saying in the Good Shepherd is this idea that ultimate death and ultimate love that yes, Jesus lived a life of daily deaths, but the reason why we look to him as the quintessence of love is because not only did he do that, but he lived up to the ultimate death, which showed the ultimate love. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about this is I think we hear this, and I think, you know, this is wonderful, but if we really think about it, we might struggle with why it was necessary that Jesus actually had to die. Because I think we feel, many of us, like, well, what was he actually saving me from? I don't feel like I'm in danger. You know, I feel like I'm okay. Was this unnecessary? And there's a lot of people who are actually arguing this idea, that this is unnecessary. We struggle with the necessity of Jesus' death for our salvation. And I think as long as we struggle with that, I think we will struggle with how deep his love is for us. So Jesus' death happened during the Passover. And I mean, this is, today is Palm Sunday, which we're celebrating with succulents. Um, and we're looking forward to this. It's Good Friday coming up, which is where we, we are celebrating the death of Jesus. We're looking forward to Easter. So we're, we're entering into the season. It's Passover. Jesus died during this time. He was entering into this death at this time. And what they knew from Passover was basically this idea that in Egypt, for them to be saved, they had to kill a lamb, shed blood, put it on their doorpost. The angel of death passed over them, which is where you get the word Passover, and then ultimately brought them out of Egypt and saved them and brought them into, ultimately, the promised land. And so they would commemorate that every year through sacrifice. This was something that was ingrained in ancient Israel and Judaism, and honestly, it's some, an idea that was very 
uh, easy to access and understand this idea that blood was necessary to wash away evil. But we struggle with this. Part of that is because we're not close to blood very often. If we want to eat a chicken, we usually don't have to kill a chicken. Some of us might, and we should talk. <laughs> but for the most part, we've been separated from that reality. So let's talk about it. Why did Jesus have to die? Why does it matter to us that Jesus died? Paul Miller wrote this. It says, The forgiveness of sin through the shedding of blood was an idea deeply embedded in the psyche of Israel and the whole ancient world. Every day the priests sacrificed hundreds of animals in the temple for the forgiveness of sins. The volume of the blood flowing out of the temple was so great that the stream outside the temple was called Kidron, or black. Spilled blood turns black. We might say, back then, people believed that evil was eradicated through the shedding of blood, but we don't believe that today. But how was the evil of Hitler and Nazism removed? Blood was shed. Millions lost their lives. Abraham Lincoln came to believe that a kind of exchange occurred on the battlefields of the Civil War in which every drop of blood drawn with a lash shall be paid by another drawn with a sword. Evil is not eradicated without a cost. You can't delete evil with a keystroke. It is far too embedded. It infects every part of the system. What was true then is still true now. The only way to eradicate evil in our lives is blood. The way the Old Testament and many of the prophets talk about it is that there's this cup of wrath, which is a fun image. It's actually this idea of wine. Uh, where they'll talk about how basically the evil is filling, and they'll talk about it like grapes ready for the vintage. And he'll come out and he'll crush all the grapes, and the juice will flow down and fill ultimately this cup of God's wrath. That's the imagery that the, the prophets use. In fact, this is where, you know, you've heard this idea of the grapes of wrath, John Steinbeck's book. And in that, he actually writes this, and he says, In the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. It's this idea that there is this evil in this world that we see, and something has to pay for it. Something has to suffer on behalf of it. That the grapes of wrath are filling, this cup of God's wrath is filling. And when Jesus is on the cross, or Jesus is leading up to the cross, he says to God in his prayer in Gethsemane, if you can take this cup from me, Take it. And the cup he was referring to, as Josh talked about last week, is the cup of God's wrath. We see this, but what I don't think we see, what I struggle to see, is that it's not just evil then or evil at there that has filled the cup of God's wrath. It's not just evil back then and evil out there that has filled the cup of God's wrath that we have filled and are filling the cup of God's wrath. We are filling it. When we drop bombs on distant countries, killing innocent people, men, women, and children, when we leverage the wealth of our nation to control the outcome of others, when we outright turn away asylum seekers because our stuff is more important than their suffering, we belittle the protests, the marginalized minorities because of our privilege is more important than their pain. We sacrifice the joy of our children for the monster of success. We fill the cup of God's wrath. We fill the cup of God's wrath. And that cup 
This is what we need to see. That cup was meant for us. That cup is meant for us. We are supposed to drink the cup of God's wrath. And the reason it matters that Jesus died, the reason it matters that Jesus did what he did, was he drunk the cup instead of us. All of the suffering that he went through, all of the pain, the death, the abandonment, the humiliation, all of that was meant for us. Not because God is cruel, but because we deserve it. Because we deserve it. We are filling the cup of God's wrath, and instead of taking it like we're supposed to, Jesus drunk it on our behalf. This is why his love is so real. This is why his love matters so much, because he suffered and laid down his life for the sheep. And now this finally brings us back to John 10. With what we said, I want to read this again. And I want us to understand the good news of what's being stated here. Starting in verse 7, it says, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I think we need to understand how this would have been heard by people at the time. When Jesus comes out and says, I, I am the good shepherd. Because we live in a world filled with bad shepherds. We live in a world of bad shepherds. Israel at the time lived in a world of bad shepherds. We actually see this theme come up earlier in the prophets. Jeremiah 23, it says this. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock. 
out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Later in Ezekiel, Ezekiel writes this. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Later in verse 11 he says this, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. And then in verse 23, it says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. There are a lot of bad shepherds. There's a lot of bad shepherds then. There's a lot of bad shepherds now. Think of Israel at the time. After David and some of Solomon there was maybe two other good kings. Maybe two. The rest of them were bad. Bad shepherds. Bad priests, bad high priests, bad shepherds. And then they came under the rule of Babylon. And then the Persians. And then they got to come back to their land, but then they got under the rule of the Greeks. And now the Romans. At the time that Jesus was saying this, their options were to either follow the Romans who were cruel follow the Sadducees who were sellouts and follow the Pharisees who were legalists. They were surrounded by bad shepherds. They were being ruled by bad shepherds. The truth is nothing has changed now. We are living in a world filled with bad shepherds. A world filled with things that do not lead us well. And what Jesus is saying about bad shepherds is not just that they're incompetent, but that they'll kill us. Do you get that? He says the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He says the bad shepherds are the hired hands. When the wolf comes, they leave. And if the shepherd's gone when the wolf comes, we can figure out what happens to the sheep. The sheeps die. That's not sheeps. Sheep. Right as I said that, I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> there are so many bad shepherds that lead us into death and destruction. There's the bad shepherd of politics. There's the bad shepherd of comfort, of philosophy, of consumerism, of entertainment, of media. All of this, we need to understand these are bad shepherds. These are thieves that are out to steal, kill, and destroy. These are the hired hands that will leave the moment things get tough. We are living in a world of bad shepherds. And I think that's what we need to see and hear when we hear Jesus said, says this. Like, can you imagine how it would have been heard 
for the, the blind man on the outskirts listening to this, for the leper who has been cast out of the temple, for the woman who has never felt like she really belonged in the nation of Israel, for the, the burdened Pharisee, for the tax collector who feels like they're a sellout, for all of these people. In the midst of that, Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. You have waited for me for so long. I am the good shepherd. I am here, and I'm here to rescue you. Imagine the weight that would have been lifted when they heard this. When they lived in a world where they knew nothing but bad shepherds, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And then he proves it. And then he proves it because when the wolf comes, he stands in the way. One of the things that I think as I was preparing for this and I was thinking about this, just as I was trying to envision the way this would have been heard then, I think it's important that we listen now. Because here's the thing, the good shepherd is here. Amen? The good shepherd is here. We no longer have to be led by bad shepherds. The good shepherd is here. And in the same way that it was good news then, it needs to be good news now. I know so many of us, uh, so many young moms who feel the weight of identity. That they feel like they've just lost themselves. They feel like they, all they have to do is compare themselves. They'll feel alone. They feel basically oppressed by the bad shepherd of media and judgment and comparison. The good shepherd's here. I know so many men, myself included, who just struggle constantly with feeling like they're enough, feeling like they're going to be good enough, feeling like they can actually bear the weight of this world. The good shepherd is here. I know so many of us who are tired, who are just not just physically tired, but are emotionally, spiritually exhausted because this world is exhausting. The demands that have been placed on this world of perfection, of merit, of constantly getting better, of constantly succeeding, of constantly having influence, constantly having power, constantly being better, all of this is suffocating us and we are tired. The good shepherd is here. For many of us who feel like the world is just for the young and that we're no longer important, the good shepherd is here. We need to hear this, that this is good news for all of us. Because as long as we follow the bad shepherds that are leading us there, they will lead us to destruction. But if we listen, if we actually hear the call and follow the call of the good shepherd, he will lead us into life. This is one of the things that I think is so beautifully ironic about the way the Bible talks about this, is that the reality is both paths lead to death, okay? Following the call of the good shepherd is not easy. To follow the good shepherd means you, you can't follow bad shepherds anymore. And probably the worst shepherd of all is ourselves. <laughs> we can't follow ourselves anymore. We're not in charge of our lives anymore. We have to die to that. 
We have to die to our old selves. We have to die to our sin, our selfishness. We have to die to our rule and reign over our lives. That both lead to death. But what I think is so important and so incredible about the message of the Good Shepherd is that there's only one that ultimately leads to life. We're going to choose which shepherd we follow. And we're going to die following either of them. But there's only one that will lead to life. And for some of us in here, some of us have heard that call before and are following and maybe are straying, maybe are walking away. I would implore you, hear the call of the Good Shepherd and follow. But I think even more importantly, there's so many of us in here who have maybe heard stuff like this before, heard this stuff, and are actually hearing right now the call of the Good Shepherd. You hear his voice and you want to follow him. And I would just say, follow him. Follow the Good Shepherd. Follow the path of love. Follow and enter into the gate of righteousness, into the path that leads ultimately to life. And I think you'll find life. Let me pray. Oh Lord, you are our shepherd. And we will not want. You make us to lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside the still waters and you restore our soul. You lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Or though we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. For you are with us, your rod and your staff, you comfort us. You prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our head with oil and our cup overflows. Lord, surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and we will dwell with you forever. Pray this. Amen.